1: Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. And today on the world's only
3: rock and roll talk show, we're going to mark Sub Pop Records' 20th anniversary by taking a look at the venerated Seattle
1: label's history and legacy. Plus, Greg and I will review the new records from Beck and Fleet Foxes. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time to welcome our newest affiliate, WFPK 91.9 in Louisville, Kentucky. Yes, Jim, and when we welcome a new
3: affiliate, we like to play music from a a great artist associated with that city. And in this case, uh, we could think of none better than Wilson Pickett, the wicked Pickett. Spent many years in Louisville after his mother moved there from Alabama. And when Pickett died in 2006, he was buried in Louisville. His eulogy was by none other than Little Richard, one of the great R&B artists of all time. And here's Land of a Thousand Dances from Wilson Pickett to welcome WFPK in Louisville 91.9 to Sound Opinions. Wilson Pickett with Land of a Thousand Dances. Welcome to WFPK 91.9 in Louisville.
1: That's Ray Davies and the Kinks bemoaning the price of a gallon of gas. Back in that other oil crisis in the mid-70s, we are living through one now, let me tell you. I think it's affecting everybody in America, Greg. It's making it impossible for a lot of musicians to tour, and you just wrote about this.
3: Absolutely, Jim. One of the issues here is that uh, we've been reporting on this in Sound Opinions for, for years now. Uh, record sales are dropping precipitously. They've dropped 25% since the year 2000. So, more and more bands need to go on the road to make money. And what they would do is go from town to town in their van and basically make at least enough money to pay for gas to get to the next town. But now, when you're paying four five bucks a gallon, it's becoming prohibitive for bands to break even on the road, uh, much less stay in business. You're seeing situations like the band Cursive, uh, who we just had on the show, uh, was describing a trip from Omaha where they live, to Madison, Wisconsin, and it cost them 240 bucks in gas yeah, money. Yeah. Now, Cursive is a fairly successful independent rock band, but for most bands, 240 bucks, they may not get that as a fee for playing a gig in Omaha, and maybe may not even have enough money to pay for gas to get to Madison. So what do right. they do? You cancel the gig in Madison. You can't play the gig. So so the country's in peril gas prices are going up People are having a tough time going on vacations, but rock bands, too, are having a tough time hitting the road, and what it's going to do is cut into the touring business where we may see less
1: bands playing fewer shows. Absolutely, Greg. Bauer Birds is a band that's in that boat. They're from North Carolina. They have this wonderful indie folk sound. They try to live as serious environmentalists. At home, they drive a biodiesel car. They use solar power. They're even building a cabin made of recycled materials. Yeah. On the road, they're in the same boat as everybody else. Their van still takes gas to hear more about the challenges that independent bands are facing on the road we are joined by Bowerbirds member Beth Tacular from Raleigh North Carolina Beth welcome to the show
4: Thank you thanks for having me
1: Tell us a little bit about life
3: on the road I mean you're a three piece band out of North Carolina touring is your lifeblood right I mean that's how you, this band earns its earns its living correct
4: uh, I guess that's the idea so far it's been kind of hard to earn money touring um because we've been doing a lot of opening for like supporting other bands, and we're kind of at the whim of their booking agents, so we end up having long drives. And um, I guess it makes it harder with all the the rising gas prices to actually make money on the on how, the road right now. How has right it now. changed
1: in just the last couple of uh, of months or the year of being on the road? Uh, what's the impact been like to your wallet?
4: Things have gone up so much that. We haven't. We went on a short tour with pretty short drives this year, but we haven't had to actually go out for a longer tour since it's gone up so much. But we're about to go out for five months, and we're kind of a little concerned about it. It's just really hard because, like, one of our tours we had last year when it was already getting kind of expensive, we played a show in Chicago. Our next show was in Portland, Oregon. Oh,
0: my God. And then,
4: <laughs> and then our next show is in San Francisco, and then we had one in Seattle, and then we had one in Los Angeles. So it was like... Totally ridiculous. We lost money on that part of the tour, and then tried to make it up with the rest of the tour. But
3: well, well, bands basically. I mean, at a certain level, a band is basically just trying to make enough money on a gig so that they can pay for gas to get to the next gig, right, Beth? I mean, is that kind of the idea?
4: It is the idea, except for if you're having to tour, say, five months out of the year, which is what we've been doing. You hope that you could bring home a little bit of money so you have time to take off and write more music to be able to tour again. You know, and so. If you have to then just come home and work really hard and then go back out on tour, it's a little bit um, exhausting, I guess.
3: So what kind of a cut does it take out of your income when you're paying $4 plus per gallon of gas? Are you seeing the impact on your wallet and how much money you're able to bring home?
4: Yeah. Last year, well, there were some other things going on, but I guess we probably made like $300 each or something (laughs) after touring for a month and a half, you know.
1: So you spend six weeks' work pretty much twenty four seven a day because you know you're if you're not driving then you're playing if you're not playing, then you're sleeping and then driving right. again uh, and you come home with three hundred dollars now now, Beth, you are an environmentalist right? I mean, you grow your own food and and you you drive a biodiesel car usually, but you have to use this big old fashioned <laughs> gas guzzling van to do this and does that bother you at all? Do you wonder what am I contributing here to the decline of our planet by just trying <laughs> to make music
4: yeah. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, it's it definitely does. It seems kind of crazy just how much gas we use and, um, and even like everyone's coming to the shows driving in cars. And I think with the oil crisis and everything that's happening, people are probably going to have to get really creative with how they tour, especially bands that aren't yet making thousands of dollars a show. And I think that's actually going to be good for the environment. And people have to do shorter drives and hang around locally more and things like that just because it just does seem kind of... Ironic.
3: You know, it's, it's never been easy being an independent band, touring on your own, but now, Beth, with this situation with the internet and downloading, cutting into album sales, it's imperative on artists to get on the road and get out there and, and tour, and that's how they make money, that's how they sell merchandise. As you said, you sell CDs at shows to people by going from town to town. Um, but does this kind of, uh, you know, the gas crisis that we're in right now, does that make you think twice about even being a band? Is, do you see a situation where, maybe if not for you, but for other bands that you know, where it just becomes economically unfeasible uh, to, to live this lifestyle anymore?
4: Yeah, definitely. I think, I mean, if we're going to not make any money doing this, we're going to lose money, and then we're spending all this, like, gas. You know, there has to be, there's going to be a change, probably, in how bands do things.
1: Well, good luck, Beth. Good luck on this uh, summer's tour, and thanks for sharing these thoughts. Thank you.
4: Thanks for having me.
1: Bowerbirds are heading out on the road this summer, Greg, or they're going to try to. For tour dates, visit bowerbirds.org. you're listening to sound opinions and that is a song called hunted down from the first sound garden ep came out on seattle's sub pop records we are going to celebrate the Sub Pop story here because Sub Pop is celebrating its legacy. They're having a big 20th anniversary concert. They are looking back at their history. Started, Greg, uh, as many things do in the rock world, as a fanzine, a labor of love by one Bruce Pavitt, who was from Illinois, had moved out to the West Coast to go to college. He started putting out a few records as a growth out of this Sub Pop fanzine. And then he linked up with Jonathan Poneman, who was booking bands, booking clubs. And uh, that's when the label really began.
3: Yeah, absolutely. The label dates its history in 1988, even though they were putting out records prior to that. You think about Nirvana's In Utero or Nevermind, records that they were really known for, sold millions of copies. There wouldn't have been those records had Nirvana not started on sub-pop ...years earlier, had they not heard Mudhoney's Superfuzz Big Muff EP and said, man, that's, that's amazing, you know, what can we do to top that? There was this pool of bands in the Pacific Northwest that, that Sub Pop started out documenting, and we want to talk about that legacy, how this little label started out with meager financial means 20 years ago, and is still around today, one of the most influential labels in the world, still to this day. And uh, we want to talk to Jonathan Poneman, one of the uh, founders of the label, and get the story behind the story of sub-pop. Later on, Jim and I are going to play some of our favorite sub-pop music, but now let's sit down and talk to Jonathan. Jonathan, welcome to Sound Opinions.
2: Well, thank you very much.
3: So, 20 years ago, going out of business since 1988, as the motto says on the sub-pop, website. A lot of people say that you put Seattle on the map. I mean, uh, home of Microsoft, home of Starbucks, obviously, there's uh, the city had a reputation. But musically, what was happening in Seattle at the time that made you and Bruce Pavitt want to document the local music scene? Because it certainly wasn't known nationally or internationally.
2: Well, there's a lot of great rock. I mean, it's really that simple. You know, what was going on at the time, you had like this earnest jangly music that was uh, emanating from places like uh, Athens, Georgia for example and you had like this antiseptic pop music kind of the new romantic type stuff that was going on in the UK and Madonna and the like and there was suddenly this raw, physical, sexy rock music that was happening in uh, Seattle, Washington and We lived here, so we decided we wanted to document it.
1: And it came out of a fanzine, right?
2: Uh, Yes. Bruce Pavitt founded Sub Pop or the Sub Pop concept. Actually, he founded the label in the early 80s. It started off as a fanzine, as a column in a fanzine. Then it became an actual fanzine. became a radio show, a column in a music monthly, as a series of cassette tapes, and ultimately a record label. It started out, first release was Sub Pop 100, which came out in 1986, followed up one year later by uh, a record called Dry as a Bone by a band, Green River. It And then Bruce and I went into business on a full-time basis on April Fool's Day, (laughs) 1988. That's why we celebrated the 20th anniversary this year. As 2008. 2008, instead of, say, 2006.
3: One One of the things that was distinctive about the label was that sense of regionalism. It was a regional label. It was documenting its scene. Did you just happen to catch the wave at the right time, or is the Seattle scene always been there, and there have always been great bands there, but there just didn't happen to be a a sub-pop to document them?
2: With my bare hands, I built it brick by brick. (laughs) Bruce's thesis, as it were, I mean his hypothesis, is that the most vital culture is actually happening outside of the big media centers. So it was a coincidence as we embarked on... You know, putting together the sub pop rec- record label on a full time basis, that there was a vibrant scene happening in Seattle. But an argument could be made that there is a vibrant scene in every city across America at any time. You know, it ju- it really just comes down to the quality of the documentation, the angle in which something, the context, I guess, would probably be the best word that something is presented. Yeah,
1: but there's more um, than that. I mean, you know, I I had this conversation with Kurt Cobain any number of times, and, and still to this day, Chris Novoselic will tell us, they could never figure out, those two guys, why Touch Me, I'm Sick hadn't been. Smells like teen spirit.
2: I can't figure it out either. I really can't. So there is an element um, of I don't the think sheer that chance. It's a, I don't think that it's a better... Well, I think that the cultural phenomenon that was Seattle at the time was at an earlier stage of development when Touch Me, I'm Sick came out. Mm-hmm. And by the time Nirvana put out Nevermind, everybody was primed. As, as much as the record caught... It's labeled by surprise to a certain degree, and there were there were lucky breaks. You know, MTV's embrace of that smells like Teen Spirit video was something that sort of embrace had never happened to a band from our sector of the music industry before, mm-hmm. and I, it was an amazing song. But I mean, all these things came together and led to an explosion of sorts. I I think that Mud Honey. Were a darker, grittier, more dangerous, and in many ways less accessible band than Nirvana. I personally, you know, touch me, I'm sick. That single remains one of my very favorite records that we've ever put out. Mm. But I think a lot of it just has to do with where the scene was at the time as far as, you know, the underground media apparatus critics, tastemakers, what have you, being hip to what was going on in Seattle. But it took a couple of years for that to make it up to a broader consumer base.
1: I'll never forget the impact of the first piece of sub-pop vinyl that I bought uh, was Super Fuzz Big Muff. <laughs> you know, I walked mm. into to Pier Platter's record store in Hoboken, New Jersey.
2: Uh, a find, a great, great legendary record store. Oh, my God.
1: And, and Bill Ryan, who would uh, later become part of A signing, saint. Oh, a, a king amongst men. <laughs> you know, yes. Bill, Bill only on rare occasions would grab me literally by the collar and say, You need this. It's going to change your life. And he put the needle down, and I was like, it already has. I haven't even gotten to side two of Super (laughs) Fuzz Big Muff. And that that reception, as I recall, as someone who was writing for fanzines at that point, was universal and instant. Everybody suddenly, you know, I mean, when you were on the sub-pop record label, you had made it.
2: Uh, Really? In the (laughs) underground. (laughs) Yeah.
1: I mean, you know, know, Sonic Youth and and everything we had going on in New York. uh, I mean, it was Mm -hmm. nothing. Everything suddenly was about Seattle, and it happened overnight.
2: Yeah. It just goes to show that uh, the depths of depravity uh, (laughs) are always uh, enchanting and wanting to be explored.
1: (laughs) It just goes to show that outside of town, perception could be different than what it actually was like for you guys at that time, right?
2: Something like that,
1: yeah. (laughs) Coming up on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, Greg and I will continue our conversation with Sub Pop co-founder Jonathan Poneman and we'll review new records from Beck and Fleet Foxes.
3: You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.
0: You've got too much to wear on your sleeves It has too much to do with me And secretly I want to bury in the yard
3: just a small sampling of the bands that uh, emerged from Seattle, Washington's sub-pop label and went on to huge national success. Independent labels in the 80s weren't uh, renowned for producing big mainstream acts, but sub-pop records uh, thought differently almost from the start. They thought big. They thought national scale acts. Why not? Why not us? We asked sub-pop co-founder Jonathan Poneman why those ambitions for his label were so big so early. My sense of of talking to you and and, and Bruce in those early days was that, you know, you you were having none of that. Why can't we have hits? Why can't we have bands that are renowned nationwide? Uh, They deserve to be. They're certainly as good as anything in the mainstream. That's Don Quixote tilting at windmills, isn't it? I mean, that was just a ridiculous notion at the time. What made you think that was possible?
2: Because the bands were great. I mean, it's really that simple. It was a populist uprising. The game was rigged. You know, the major labels at the time had radio in their back pocket. For that matter, major label distribution had all of the quality space in the big retail chains. So there, there was always, you know, an indie sector and a vital indie sector at that point in time. But uh, it wasn't really taken seriously by the consumers because the profile wasn't really high enough – for your average music consumer to go and, you know, to learn about it. If you if you were paying attention to fanzines and to college radio culture, then there was a better chance that you would stumble onto this stuff.
3: The other thing too, I think there was sort of an umbrella about the label. In in other words, you there was an aesthetic at work, a sound, a look in a, in a lot of ways maybe selling the label as much as the individual bands. I mean you had basically an in-house producer with Jack and Dino Charles Peterson was taking all the photographs there was a a unified concept at work I mean were you was that just did that just sort of happen or did you really sort of Plan these things out Ahead of time Before they, before they what uh, Are you Are you burn?
2: like being Toto Pulling back the curtain On The Wizard of Oz <laughs> I remember exactly.
1: having A conversation with Bruce Where he took full credit For planning it all You know Talking about the, you know, the way No 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 Well you know He would wax Ooh. philosophical
2: Salt on the wound No no, no no He
1: would wax philosophical As was his wont, And he was talking about About the way the Beats Had done it You know who cared about Kerouac right But Ginsburg would talk About Kerouac And then Burroughs Would talk about Ginsburg And then you know And it was like you know we're all just going to say we're the coolest people in the world. Nobody thinks we are. But if we keep repeating it and we all say it about each other, it's going to catch on. Now, mm-hmm. now, now that might have been added after the fact, you know, because I was there uh, talking to him circa, you know, in-, in utero being made. There wasn't a music or cultural journalist in the world that didn't come to see you guys when, you know, they. you got flown to Seattle. He came to see you guys. Went to the I crocodile. Know,
2: I know, son. Yes, <laughs> I know. <laughs>
1: Don't let him off the hook, Jim. Gets back to the question. On, How much of it was, you know, we got the same typeface, we got the same photo, you know, we, we, got, we, we have an aesthetic. We're building a sub-pop brand.
2: Yes. Uh, the secret is out.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what's your, if, if you got to look at everything you ever put out, John, what's the one record you would take? If the house was on fire, what's the one that you'd run away with?
2: Hmm. Probably my um, test pressing of Bleach because then I could uh put it on eBay and <laughs> rebuild buy a new the house. house.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I bet. That's one to save for a really rainy day, right?
2: Yeah, you got it.
1: How many times did you guys skirt actual financial disaster? I think it's like two or three by my count.
2: I I you know, it's I really I it's hard for me to keep tabs, but we quite literally were going out of business since 1988.
3: <laughs> as as the uh logo says, what what happened? Uh, obviously, you know when 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 Cameron Crowe rolls into town and does the movie Singles, and 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 obviously years later the the hype documentary came out, sort of talking about all this. You guys always had a sort of bemused quality about this whole thing. There was a, there was a tongue in cheek aspect to it. Ninety one, ninety two, all you know, Seattle's blown up, and and you guys were just like, this is going to be over so soon. Was there a point where you thought, okay? this means the end of us too. a point where you thought we're going to have to reinvent ourselves in order to keep this thing going because clearly the mainstream has embraced us and that means co-optation and the end of everything. What were you thinking around that period when everybody was paying attention to the label?
2: There were a lot of opportunities that came our way and seizing them, seizing the right opportunities and exploiting them in an appropriate way became a Of Paramount Concern. (laughs) Is that oblique enough for you? Yeah, yeah.
3: Yeah. Did it work?
2: I'm talking to you uh, 20 years later, right?
3: (laughs) But there was a period there in the mid-'90s where uh, a lot of people were saying, well, grunge is over.
2: What Mm -hmm. does
3: this label do? You reinvented yourself in a lot of ways. You were no longer the grunge label. How did you make it through those next 10 years when, when all of that that you had built the label on sort of faded away and 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 no longer was the flavor
2: I mean truthfully Bruce and I lucked out initially we had a bedrock belief in the bands that we were working but we didn't really understand how the music industry operated Uh, we understood in in a grand sense how the music industry on a macro sense how the music industry worked but the finer details, we were not prepared to be business people. So we spent those following 10 years, as you put it, learning how to be business people, hmm. which meant uh, making stupid decisions <laughs> and uh, you know, trying things out, a lot of research and development. But uh, we came out on the other end, and uh, there you have it.
1: Nothing comes out on Sub Pop if you don't like it, right? I mean, the story of the great indie labels throughout history, whether we're talking about Motown or Touch and Go, whether we're talking about Matador or or Stax Vault, there have always been one or two key people who are the ears that say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you for bringing this to me. You're right. This is good.
2: We have a program for that, actually. (laughs) Microsoft developed it? Indeed. How did you know? No, uh, I I do sign off on... On all of the contracts, and um, it's not mere boosterism, but I actually find myself enchanted with all of the records that come out on Sub Pop. Maybe it's just a coincidence.
3: Far be it from us to be nostalgic, although it is 20 years. But do you look back on that era as, as you know, where did that come from? I mean, does it make sense to you why so many great bands from the Pacific Northwest at that one time in that particular era?
2: Um. I look back at it, you know, it was a, a fun time, but I hold true to the belief that there are a lot of great bands everywhere that are waiting to be discovered and as stated provided a context. And uh, what was going on in the Pacific Northwest at the time, it was, there was a communal energy a lot of people, well not a lot, uh, actually a small group of people hanging out together. But doing so a great deal of the time, going to each other's shows, partying, hanging out, it was a fun youth.
3: Cool. Jonathan, uh, thanks. It's been a pleasure, man. Thank you.
1: What you're hearing is a little bit of the new Wolf Parade record. I'd say uh, one of the most successful bands on sub pop today, taking sub pop in a new direction. The label has also recently given us The Shins, No Age, Flight of the Concords, and Fleet Foxes, which we're going to review a little bit later in the show. But first, Greg, I think we want to wrap up our tribute to 20 years of sub-pop by choosing a favorite, each of us. Uh, You're going to go first. What is your sub-pop tune to lay upon us?
3: Well, thank you, Jim. Uh, You mentioned a couple of bands just now that are signed to sub-pop that are non-Seattle bands, you know, No Age, Shins, and there's a long tradition at the label of signing non-Pacific Coast Northwest bands, L7, Red Red Meat, CSS. When did that start? Initially, the label was all about documenting Seattle and the Pacific Northwest, but they broke the mold when they signed the band that I'm going to play next to the label. That was the Afghan Whigs out of Cincinnati, Ohio. The Whigs started out as sort of a faux grunge band out of Cincinnati. They were mimicking a lot of the sounds that they were hearing coming out of the Pacific Northwest well before they were fashionable. But when they really got distinctive was bringing in this element of soul vocalizing into the band. Greg Dooley, the lead singer, is quite a character with uh, apparently a pretty creative uh, sex life.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, A
3: little bit off the rails, let's That's say. That's a way to put it. And documenting some of these travails in his songs and bringing in the soul element really gave them a distinctive Flair that set them apart from any other band, not only on Sub Pop, but nationwide. They've never been a hugely successful band, but on Sub Pop, they laid the groundwork for uh, some of the best albums of the 90s, in my opinion. A lot of people consider Gentlemen their their masterpiece, but the record that came out before that, the last that they put out for Sub Pop, was called Congregation, and I think that's where they really developed that sound and that Greg Dooley persona. And the track I'm going to play is the Dreaded Hidden track from the record. It's not even listed on the listings, but I think it's one of the best the best tracks on the record. It's called Miles is Dead, and it's from Afghan Wigs on Sound Opinions.
1: is Dead by the Afghan Whigs. Great choice, Greg. And I wanted to do something similar with my pick here, uh, which is to say sub-pop is more than Seattle and grunge. In fact, I think that those two words would probably make Bruce Pavitt spit right now. <laughs> but they've always had a broad interest. These were guys who loved independent music in many forms. If you look at the list of 150-odd bands that they've worked with over 20 years on their website, you'll see names like the Shins and Zampano and the Walkabouts and the Album Leaf. I'm going to play a record that I think has had a huge influence on everything that's happened in the indie world in the last 10 years, when we're hearing stuff like the Arcade Fire suddenly being proclaimed as the indie band of the moment, it all goes back to a group named Cardinal that was mm. Eric Matthews and Richard Davies. They only made one record together and was really the birth of what's called the orc pop or orchestral pop movement. Then Matthews split and he signed a sub pop. He was a child in the Northwest. I spent a lot of time in Portland. Classically trained uh, musician great trumpet player, wonderful songwriter, very smoky kind of Nick Drake baritone vocals. He put out a a great debut solo record on Sub Pop in 1995 called It's Heavy in Here and it opened with a song which I think is one of the finest pieces of music that this great label has ever given us. It's called Fanfare and uh, if you haven't heard this, you're in for a treat. Eric Matthews on Sound Opinions. (laughs)
3: fanfare from Eric Matthews, great choice Jim, indicative of how the label Sub Pop has been able to stay alive for 20 years by diversifying its sound and going outside that grunge template, no doubt about it. For more on the show soundopinions.org has excellent footnotes about Sub Pop and everything we say on this show. We're going to be back in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with more reviews, this time of albums by Beck and the Fleet Foxes. I've
0: seen you and heard you groan. those open wounds still the And if we find that one mission was real? Let's no out, or where the have opened up, not surprise. and we to I'd love to know is what you're feeling down. Low so super low, I know.
1: Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and it is time for us to do some album reviews, Mr. Cott, starting with the eighth studio record from Beck, Modern Guilt. We just heard a song called Youthless from this disc, came out as Beck Hansen turned 38. He told the English press recently in a quote that I saw, I always wanted to do a modern version of a psych rock record. You might say... Mr Hansen, did you not do that in 2002 with Sea Change and then tour with The Flaming Lips to underscore that it was psychedelic pop? Uh yeah, he did. But the difference with this record, which is coming on the heels of two of his most successful, Guero in 2005 and The Information in 2006, the difference is he's working with Brian Burton, better known as Danger Mouse, the much-celebrated producer, uh, leader uh, with uh, CeeLo of Gnarls Barkley, a guy who's pretty much naming his price. Anybody who wants to hire him today is paying top dollar because he's one of the hottest producers in America. He's working with Beck, and Beck is drawing on some familiar collaborations collaborators, people like Joey Warenker on drums and his longtime keyboardist Greg Kirsten, Jason Faulkner playing bass, as well as uh, some newcomers, uh, Cat Power, Ed's harmonies. I think for the first time she's collaborated with Beck. What is Beck giving us on this eighth studio album? Let's play a track, and then as always on Sound Opinions, we're going to rate it on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale. I wanted to play a song called Walls, uh, Greg. Beck, as you know, is a Postmodern poster boy. He is often just riffing uh, on words and and, and playing with words for the way that they sound, just spewing stuff off the cuff. He's uh, been saying quite a bit uh, that this album was recorded very quickly by his standards. A lot of it was done in the studio and improvised, and there's not necessarily meaning. This is a song with meaning, I think, that's talking about, I think, Generation Y, Wake Up. A lot of this world is at war, and you may be comfortable here at home, but a lot of the rest of the world isn't. And that may happen to you too. It's a song called Walls by Beck from his new one, Modern Guilt, on Sound Opinions.
0: Some days we get a thrill in our brains. Some days it turns in the lace. See your face in the veneer, reflected on the surface of fear. Because you know that we're better than that. Some days we're worse than you can imagine. And how we're supposed to live with that? With all these dreams. Come in Hey, what are you gonna do when those walls are falling down, falling down on you? Hey, what are you gonna do when those walls are falling down, falling down on you? You got warheads stacked in the kitchen. Distraction like it's a religion The battle take step in you rhythm but you're the best with the souls you've been given Because you know enough that's special to them Going you know someplace they've already been you're Trying to make sense of what they know is And the swift rap and been with them Hey, what are you gonna do? Well,
3: That's Walls from Beck's latest album called Modern Guilt. You're right, Jim. There's a lot of uh, apocalyptic imagery running through uh, this music, including that song in particular. He opens up with a song, Orphans, where he's either envisioning his own death or the end of the world. I'm not sure one or the other. The next song, we're talking about environmental disaster on Gamma Ray. Chemtrails, the conspiracy theories, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Modern guilt, well, that speaks for itself. I mean, we're, you know. <laughs> so clearly, he's, he's, talk, he's talking about the outside world. The collaboration with Danger Mouse, I think, is an inspired choice. He's been working with some interesting producers lately. Nigel Godrich on the information he re upped with the Dust Brothers on Guero as a sort of reprise of his Odalay breakthrough in yeah. 1994. And now, with uh, the hottest producer possibly in the game today in, in Danger Mouse. I think this is the most interesting-sounding back record since Odellay in terms of just Mm. perking up your ears and going, wow, that's that's just cool. That's a little different. I didn't expect this from him. And all due credit to Brian Burton did a terrific job in, in creating that very 60s psychedelic pop
1: overlay here. Well, listen to what we just heard in Walls. You know, it starts with those sawing cellos uh, matched with the computer beats, and then you get that sound of a theremin kind of uh, mimicking a screaming woman in the choruses, Mm -hmm. which is really kind of inspired instrumentation. Yeah,
3: it's 3D. I think, though, what's going on is that the production inventiveness is camouflaging the fact that not all of the songs are quite up to snuff, he did it quickly it sounds like it I think he's got about half of a great record here I think it really falls off in the second half uh, that song replica I don't even, wouldn't even call it a song it's <laughs> basically a drum it, you know it's something that you would have heard in a mid 90s British club that jungle vibe that bass yeah, drum yeah. thing that it's was a going on the experiment
0: now it's home to
3: So I think 8-plus for the production, great-sounding record. About half of it's great songs, but not the other half. I'd have to give it a burn
1: it on a buy it, burn it, trash it scale. I'm surprised to hear you say that. I've, uh, I've learned to stop worrying and love me some Beck. <laughs> um, you know, look, he's a hard artist to really embrace because he is so self-consciously eclectic. I've slammed Tom Waits for for walking around, you know, screaming, look at what a weirdo I am. And Beck is so much worse than that. You know what I mean? The cat is just one weird dude or <laughs> trying very hard to seem like one on television. If you take it in the long run, as we should now for, for, you know, on his eighth album, there are always three or four or five great songs on each new record. And especially the tours of the last four or five years have been extraordinary. You start to really gain a new appreciation of that material as he performs it live and he does very inventive things, you know, whether it's having the puppets as his backdrop <laughs> or playing found instruments or apparently he's going to be surrounded by nothing but mirrors. So it's an endless stage on this new tour. I have to say, if I don't worry about uh, whether he's saying anything important Or whether he is an important innovator I just enjoy this album quite a bit And I gotta give it a buy it On the buy it, burn it, trash it scale Much more enthusiastic than your burn it I was
0: following me I was following me I
5: was following me I was following me I was following me I was following me I was following me
3: the sound of the Fleet Foxes from their self-titled debut album on the Sub Pop label, which we uh, have just talked about. The name of that song is White Winter Hymnal, an example of the New Seattle sound, if you will, certainly about as far removed from grunge as you could possibly get, as you can hear there. The band was formed by two grade school friends, Robin Pecknold and Skylar Skelsett, who met in the Seattle suburbs when they were in junior high school and have been collaborating off and on ever since. The band has now evolved into a five-piece. All of the band members have played in various Seattle bands. They're all in their early 20s, but relative veterans on, on the Seattle independent scene. They put out an EP in 2007 called Sun Giant, that was rapturously received by the indie press and uh, especially got a lot of notice in the U.K. And the reviews for uh, the new album in the U.K. have been equally over the top. The, uh, the band has toured there and has uh, received quite a welcome. So one of those uh, independent albums that you need to hear in 2008 in order to be a fully informed member of the rock community, I think <laughs> we're going to hear about whether it's any good or not in a minute here. So let's let's play a song first before we give you that review. We're going to play a song called "Your Protector" from Fleet Foxes on Sound Opinions.
0: She left a week to roam. Your protector's coming home. Keep your secrets with you, girl. Safe from the outside. Walk along the stream, your head caught in a waking dream, your protectors come and home.
1: Is with a song called Your Protector from their self-titled debut. Greg, where does this band fit? I think it helps to give a little bit of context. There has been this freak folk movement, mainly coming from the East Coast, with uh, guys with long beards who <laughs> love to take drugs, who uh, love to talk about taking drugs, and who love to uh, tell us how strange they are. I'm thinking of, of Animal Collective and Devandra Barnhardt. I much prefer this to that sort of thing because it just seems so much more organic and real. Baroque harmonic pop jams is how Fleet Foxes describes its uh, its music. Obviously, as you said, these are kids in their early 20s. Their musical archaeology has been done on the Internet. Mm-hmm. You hear a lot of Smile-era Beach Boys, and you hear Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, but also deeper, stranger roots, Celtic folk music, British Isles folk music, a kind of timelessness. This is, this is the stuff Jethro Tull, at its <laughs> best, was mining and, and kind of cheesing up. <laughs> <laughs> but but these guys aren't cheesy. Uh, you know, I, I don't think they're trying to convince us how weird they are. I mean, they're trying to write great pop music from a psychedelic folk vein, and they're doing it really, really well. There are moments here that drive me crazy, okay? I don't ever want to hear the song Meadowlarks again. <laughs> Trying to imitate the, the sound of a hummingbird with your voice is just not a good thing, okay? <laughs> but the rest of it, man, I, I expected to dislike this record just because of the level of pretension. It, the, the cover is a Brugel painting from mm. the 1500s yeah. of medieval peasantry, okay? Yes. Not a good sign, but it all works. It really is making me a giant fan. this is the coolest freaky folk in the best sense of that word that I've heard since the incredible string band. It's so a
3: buy it. Oh yeah, I mean, I uh, this this is a wonderful record on a number of levels. You ha- First of all, I think you have to buy into what's going on here because it is different. Those vocals and those harmonies, those stacked harmonies, are at the core of this record, and they sort of play these rounds with the vocals, which is something you'd see kids doing around a campfire, you know, who are have a little bit of ex- singing. Experience. Yeah, or medieval monks. E- exactly. Uh, you know, when you mention the vocal references, I was thinking of the Estonian composer Arvo Pärt as as sort of a reference point here. This sort of very stacked harmonies that are very dense, and it's almost like there's a whole world living inside those voices. You know, Mm. four or five singers going at the same time. It doesn't contain the multitudes that Parrot does, but I think the sounds are very similar in terms of what they're going for, almost this transcendent hymn-like quality, and it's there in this music. There's also, notice the drumming, Jim. You, as the drum expert of Sound Opinions, need to appreciate, I'm sure, the fact that we're not hearing a whole lot of conventional trap kit kind of drumming. There's a lot of this kind of deep thumping, almost timpani-like, floor tom-type drumming going on here with mallets, and up top, you've got, instead of the traditional electric guitars, you've got a lot of these stringed instruments like mandolins and banjos going on up top, and then these beautiful voices. It doesn't sound like anything out there in indie rock at the moment, but at the core of it, there are these amazing songs. I mean, just beautiful, beautiful melodies, one after another, and deceptively so, because there's some pretty dark subject matter in here. If you study that cover painting that you pointed out... Yeah, the peasants uh, ain't so happy. There's some chaos going on yeah. in there, you know, so there's this pastoral kind of image going on, but at the same time, there's, there's all this tumultuous activity, and I, that's the same with these songs. So this is a beautiful record, kind of a disturbing record on some levels, but buy it all the way for the Fleet Foxes debut.
1: A double buy it. Mr. Cott, what do we have on Sound Opinions next week?
3: Jim, next week we have the extreme privilege of having witnessed the first Feely show in 17 years on their home turf of Hoboken New Jersey we were out there interviewing the band we're going to play some excerpts from that concert and
1: I can't think of a more
3: uh, amazing thing to have on
1: the show it's next week. Too than that. good to be true, I know. This show, this week, was brought to you as always by our intrepid production team of Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, and intern Dylan Peterson, with our fearless leader, our executive producer, a man who knows a thing or three about lutes and meadowlarks, <laughs> Tory Southside Malatia.
3: On sound opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 1-888-859-180.
0: 1800 the
5: Messages. Hey, this is Dominic calling from Brooklyn, New York. I just listened to the Sound Opinions broadcast of the America uh, tribute, American songs. I have to say uh, one great addition would be I'm So Bored with the USA by The Clash. I think it's significant because it started out as a song not even about the USA, uh, I'm So Bored with You, but I guess uh, Joe Strummer misheard it and they went with uh, I'm So Bored with the USA. and I think it, it took on a whole new life of its own, being that it, you know, talked about the British feelings and having USA USAs constantly being a nation that they were were looming the shadows. that one and uh thanks again for all the picks and love the show hey guys my name's kevin and i'm from berkeley and i just wanted to say i love the show it's the show i always wanted but didn't know i wanted it i also had to call after listening to the independence day show i liked all the songs you played well except for maybe randy newman but uh, I wish your song list wasn't so negative. You know, I'm not some flag waving, bush loving neocon, but being a journalist myself, I know this country isn't all that bad. Uh, case in point, instead of playing Big Country, which is basically David Byrne talking smack about Jesus Land over a riff he stole from Donovan's Atlantis, you could have played Don't Worry About the Government. I see the
0: clouds move across the.
5: Though it could be considered a scathing diatribe on the factory style version of American life, I honestly think Byrne was actually trying to convey the pleasantries and comfort found in middle class America. Uh, But yeah, anyways, great show, and I hope to hear more great shows like it. Thanks. Hey guys, this is uh, Jeff from Rockhegan, Illinois. I'm just calling about uh, your American music show. Uh, probably the song that I would add onto the list would be American Music by the Blasters. Just perfectly illustrates one of our greatest exports to the rest of the world, which is our, our native American music. Well, are you a American music, they want to hear that sound, that
2: book, the
5: USA. Despite whatever's going on currently in our country with our politics and society, it is our greatest export, and uh, it's the glue that holds us together as a people. Great show. good work. They want to hear that
1: sound, that book, the
5: USA. Greg and Jim just got done listening to your Independence Day show. It's Scott in Chicago i got to tell you, man, I'm disappointed. An American music show without the boss? It's crazy. And I think Land of Hopes and Dreams should have been on there. And this train, you know, picks up saints and sinners. This train. Karen's
2: losers and
5: winners. This train. Karen's horse and gambler. All aboard, guys. All aboard. That's America. Otherwise, great show as always. Dreams will not be.